Hello and welcome to the Convivio Agency Leaders podcast. On each episode, we chat to a leader of a creative agency about what they've learned about leadership over the years and their tips and trips, tricks they'd like to pass on. Well, this week I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Joe Baker, but also by Jim Bowes, who has had quite a couple of years uh, building up his own agency, uh, seeing it merge with a much bigger organization and all sorts of things going on around that. So Jim, uh, welcome to the show. Now tell us a bit about Manifesto first, how you got it started, what you did and how it grew. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've worked in digital for over 20 years now. Um, uh, some of that time I freelanced, some of that, that time I had permanent jobs, either running websites or, or working as project manager or working in editorial. Um, and and I, I suppose I, in 2011, lots of things combined. And I had this sort of growing feeling that I could do it better than lots of the people I'd worked with. And I wrote a document called The Manifesto, which was intended to be um, a manifesto for the kind of company I'd like to work for. Um, I think at the time, I'd worked briefly in one agency, but I, I didn't, I suppose I wasn't, it was just a thing I wanted to do. It wasn't specifically an agency at that point, but but it still had sort of reasonably ambitious targets to grow and, and, and build into a business. Um, and I contacted three former colleagues, two of whom I'd worked with on a large project at Barclays when I'd worked at Barclays. Uh, one of them had uh, come from an agency. We'd worked with one from a software vendor. So we had these sort of different backgrounds. And then the other person was a, a senior salesperson that I knew because I thought between us, uh, we could make a great a great business. And um, two of those three people agreed to join me. The person that worked professionally in sales was being paid far too well to have any interest in starting again from scratch in the world of agency uh, and said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll teach you a few things about sales, which was good of him, good friend of mine. Um, and, and we sort of got going from, from there, really. So three of us, I guess we were a technology consultancy to begin with, or, or three sort of contractors kind of um uh, working sort of very quickly and then we used the money we took big pay cuts and uh, used the money that we saved uh, to invest in hiring people at the start of the first year and then um we grew the business over about six or seven years to about five million pounds turnover um, and at that point um, did a deal for the business and, and the reason that we did that was that um, it was obvious to me that me and my business partners all had different aspirations i suppose mm that w would be very difficult we we actually um i saw in your last episode you were talking about retreats and we used to do a retreat every year just the three of us and and, and something that we continued once we had a leadership team and every year you'd sort of align and and i noticed that progressively over the years it was getting harder and harder to agree <laughs> what, what what we were all aiming for together um and I suppose I'd been that sort of catalyst for the business. Uh, and, and there was a point at which I could tell uh, one of my business partners was Australian, wanted to go back to Australia. Another one, you know, I think wanted to take a different direction in their career. So doing a deal felt like a good idea. Yeah. So we'll come back to that in a little bit because that bit is really interesting. But I want to take you back to the start and how you learned to be a leader in the first place when you first started Manifesto. Had you had experience leading things before, running businesses, leading teams of people, or had you observed and learned? How did you become a leader? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good question. And I think so firstly, I've had a very varied working life and very varied career, and I've owned multiple businesses. Manifesto is just the first business that's been successful. Um, and um, in the early part of my um, journey, I gave up um, I gave up my A-levels to manage a band. So I had to get unruly creative people uh, pulling in the same direction uh, from quite early. I was 17 when I did that. 
and um and, and i sort of did things like djing and i promoted gigs where i had to attract an audience and and i learned a lot from those scenarios because you're sort of trying to shape what you want to happen in different scenarios to happen and then as i sort of went back into digital um i suppose what i saw was a mixture of like generally i think line management is very poor I think the general standard, like that as a sort of just broad generalization. And certainly in my experience working in sort of IT departments, I was quite poorly managed. And, and I suppose I started to get a picture of who has managed me well <laughs> and who, who hasn't. And, and actually one of my best managers, I, I did marketing for a water and air hygiene company when I was uh, around about 18 briefly. And, and actually I had a good manager that used to hold sort of real conversations with you about, about your job and how you're doing. Uh, but as I worked more in IT departments and things, you, you tended to find people that had never asked to be a manager or a leader put into positions of leadership. And um, and I think that was my experience sort of largely going through that process. And, I, and probably a reluctant manager myself, but I ended up at Cancer Research directly uh, before I started Manifesto Cancer Research UK, the charity. And that was the first t place that I'd had any formal uh, management training I think being a leader being a different thing but I also became a sort of agile practitioner uh, and so in that you learn uh, learn a lot of aspects of sort of servant leadership or uh, that sort of how to run effective teams and so I think the combination of uh, getting some actual training so there was a one particular course which was how uh, they had a course on how to have a difficult conversation that they sent all managers on and I still think that's one of the more useful things that I've done as a piece of um, management before that, when I was at Barclays, I led a lot of teams in India and I, there was some useful training there for sort of um, uh, uh, communicating across cultures and, 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 and different sort of styles of communication. So I guess in having a very varied life, I probably then rejected it all and thought, I'm just going to do this thing myself. And then over time, obviously, that morphs into something where you actually need to be a leader. And I remember setting myself... Uh, about three years into the manifesto journey i i kind of kind of an okr i don't think that's what we called them at the time uh but be a better ceo was was was, was which is very general i realize but but i think i'd sort of just been like pouring energy into growth and selling and then i realized we probably had like 10 staff or something and i needed actually to start to become a bit more rounded in you know my approach and i you know i suppose i needed to be able to like take bad news and take it well and things like that that you sort of gain over time in agency life and you used an interesting phrase there pouring the energy in and uh, you know someone who knows you and everyone who knows you will know that you are a force of energy you are just this uh kind of uh yeah little bundle of energy and positivity that's going out there and doing stuff and is you know around that then have you built sort of the the structure the planning uh have you built that around this energy um how do you how do you kind of divide your time into decide where to spend the energy yeah i mean i think um uh, you may be familiar with uh, there's a there's a, a system that some agencies and some small businesses use called the entrepreneur's operating system this has the, the idea of um, a visionary and a, a um, an integrator in it at the, at the top of their hierarchy of people I, there's things in that model i don't i do like and things that i don't like but i think um recognizing um because at times in my life i can be very operationally minded and i love a bit of detail um, however, what, what I've recognized in the position of leading a whole business, actually surrounding yourself with some brilliant people that you give some space to, to help implement the vision is, is the right way to do it. And, and I've, I've been very fortunate. Um, so my 
partner in in life and my partner in work louise bliss has worked very closely with me and, and done a lot of that and i also have someone who's now the managing director at manifesto rebecca hull who i'd worked with previously at cancer research and they're slightly more uh, process and operations minded people and they've brought huge huge value and of course with my original business partners we we segregated our, our roles and and um, you know, I, I suppose I was more the outward face um, of, of things, but but I suppose I've always kept a keen interest in how every aspect of the business is run. So that walking that line of because um, I think you know you're still ultimately responsible for the quality of everything as the leader and as the CEO. So how do you do that in a way that isn't uh, really irritating to everybody around you? Uh, it is an ongoing challenge, and I think you know you build trust over time and sometimes you just have to not know and not see some things and that's that's the best way to do it but but you can also over time you know build that reassurance in yourself or or just being happy with you know i used to walk through the whole agency say we're only practicing um uh, and and that sort of mindset of you know that it's very much from the agile way of thinking of of, of you know uh, fail fast and test and learn and things I, I was always i wanted the culture to be that we were always practicing albeit doing great work for those clients at the time to get the next thing that we wanted to do okay and you had business partners so how did you divide up the responsibility in the early days while there were the three of you well uh, my one, my business partner curtis he was a child actor he was in home and away when he was a kid in australia um <laughs> he was like wow. a um he was like a real technical genius he was interesting in the sense that so he was a specialist in a specific platform essentially i sold him as much as i could and made as much money to invest in growing the agency from him as we could and his responsibility was to earn as much money as he could so that was kind of clean um, he was sort of notionally the cto and actually as we needed him to take up that position more that was a thing he wrestled with you know that sort of am i a gun for hire consultant or or am i or am i a sort of cto and eventually um we actually hired a cto and and, and he stayed in a more consulting type role and then i think my other business partner took on the sort of coo role and he but he'd previously been a java developer um so he had a real learning curve and i think that was difficult for him because we still got him to go out and do like agile consulting and COOing. And um, eventually, I think when he left the business, he, he chose to go back to sort of full-time scrum mastering. And, and I think this, the COO part had been like an interesting learning adventure or thought experiment for him. But I think after several years of doing it, he's like, this isn't actually what my career is going to be. And did you make decisions and do planning as a trio or was that left to you as CEO? Do you, you know, were you kind of the dominant leader? I, I, I probably, I would normally f formulate sort of some strategic stuff but we you know we, we from very early ran a monthly board meeting and quarterly uh sort of replanning meetings and then an annual two days off-site um so i would say it was sort of consensus driven but with me being the slightly more driving force yeah, it's okay. probably a realistic <laughs> way to describe it yeah. And you talk about these kind of the annual meetings where you're kind of checking you're aligned. What were you, how did you run those and how did you, what process did you go through to decide on what the alignment was or whether it wasn't there? Yeah, and it, ch it changed over time. I mean, first and foremost, it, it was an opportunity to reflect and review. And we, we used to, we, what we originally looked for was uh, where's a sort of slightly eccentric hotel less than an hour from London? <laughs> 
Um, and we found this place near Stevenage and, and there was a wood panelled room with an open fire. We used to do it in November. And um, by then we used to run our financial year as a calendar year. So you'd kind of know basically how the year was going to have panned out. And it would sort of start on a Thursday morning and we'd have, you know, a big round of, of sandwiches and get the log fire on. And, and then we'd, but we'd, in the early days when you could fit all of this in, we'd talk through every team member. We'd decide pay rises at that. Like it was, a, we, we, so it had like quite a structured agenda and we'd sort of split it into the more forward looking visionary bits and the more sort of, where are we up to on this uh, kind of things and and we would um on the second day i think we would invite our partners and and we so there was an element of socializing and working and thinking and reflecting all sort of um mixed into one and and then eventually that ended up as something that had i don't know like eight people at it um and then the last thing that we did was actually here at my house with eight of the leadership team um was just one day because we had some other group events to go on to on a, on a second day and that was on the day of England's semi-final uh, match in the Euros, uh, which is why so I can remember it specifically. And we sort of, you know, did, did the same. You all just spent time together, a bit of eating, a bit of drinking, a bit of tackling really gnarly problems in the business. But I think with such a lack of contact over the last 18 months uh, and, and new people in that leadership team who'd never met before, like creating those face-to-face -face moments and those connections uh, they're what you really sort of rely on in sort of difficult times in the business. Yeah, and you then what you were going through a very intense time for a period where you were uh, deciding to part ways with your co-founders. You were uh, selling the business, uh, merging it into another organisation, and you know, hard or exciting, those are intense times. Yeah. So what I decided to do was start another business at the same time um, because I found it so. <laughs> I did. I only analysed this afterwards. Um, so I started a dance fitness business uh, called Glow um, that uh, does retro aerobics with a, with a fitness instructor that I know. And I, I realised that I think it was like a way to like. It's really weird when you feel all of your eggs are in a basket but you've decided to like, I don't know, ski down a black rum with the, the eggs in a basket um, and you've never skied before. And, 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 and that's probably what it was a little bit like because we were, um, our, our sale of Manifesto, the organization we were selling to didn't really exist at that point. So uh, the, the, the sale was conditional on a successful IPO. Um, and so it was a very complex deal. Um, the, the meeting, the legal meeting I did where I had to go through all the warranties I was giving was six hours long. And that's the sort of stuff that literally saps energy from me. And, and so I think as a piece of escapism, I started this dance fitness business with, with Frankie Friday, now called Retro Glow, because we got a, a cease and desist from a US business about the original name. But um, I, I probably shouldn't name because I'll probably get another one. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah, it was a very intense period and it does things to you psychologically. And also when you sell a business, you have performance commitments to the people that have bought you. And what that does to your own psychology and your own performance in the, in the months that, that follow is, is, is really fascinating and how, how you manage your own brain. Um, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging time to still make decisions in the way you always have made decisions and behave the way you always have behaved because there's an, an extra bit of cognitive load. And suddenly you're not in charge anymore. I mean... You might be the first person that said that to me, Steve. I'm not sure I accept that. I don't know. I'm not, at that point, I was, I mean, yes, you did. No, because the original vision for the business was to keep all of the businesses separately. I was still CEO of sure. the business I used to be CEO of. I just had some new non-exec guests at my board meeting. 
um but it was fairly light touch i i think in that sense i really did well there's a few things i got an amazing learning opportunity i was part of the team that did the ipo uh the three of us the ceo and cfo and, and i did that and we ipo'd these four businesses which meant that the, the transaction went through and, and and the group was created um and th they were also very respectful it, particularly in that sort of uh, that initial run of things and, and and it wasn't too onerous i think i was fortunate in that sense um obviously things have have, have grown and changed and developed over time and, and and the businesses are coming together now as a single business but um i think it's all everybody's had the opportunity to get used to things um along that journey yeah and you've made a decision to step back a little bit become less involved in the data what's that like as a leader and you know how long did that decision take to make well, um, it's something that's been on my mind for a while. Uh, so I guess it's taken more than six months. But I think you're sort of almost waiting for a good opportunity uh, to present itself. Uh, and that's what's happened, really. I, I think um, I think I'm still in progress for, for how it feels. I've gone down to four days a week. Um, and it was a culmination of a number of things, really. It's that 10 years is a long time to hold the same role, even though it's changed a lot over that period of time. And I think it's also about creating opportunity. You know, I've put together a really good team. We've restructured the business so that it's led in a different way. So it requires a bit less of what I brought to the table in a way um and i think you know i'm just on that journey now of sort of experiencing what it's like to not attend certain things um and to play a slightly more non-executive capacity in the business so i'm i'm coaching some people in the business i'm still helping with some new business and i and i'm sort of a non-exec and here for advice when i'm needed yeah, very interesting transition as an entrepreneur, uh, sort, of, sort of founder and a leader to sort of step back and be, well, the, just the phrase non-exec, you know, not in <laughs> direct charge, you know, an advisor. Uh, and how are you adapting to that? And what's your advice, uh, you know, as leaders get to that stage? Well, I, I think my advice is uh, only do it if you want to and you're really clear on the reasons why you're doing it. I did a few sessions with a coach uh, to just help me clear. So th there's a few things that have gone on in my life, which I'm, you know, it's probably, probably worth mentioning. So um, that I had an operation in October sort of unexpectedly. And so you, making me reflect on my health. And since Christmas, I've had permanent tinnitus, which is quite irritating. Um, and, and there's been a few other health things along the way. So I, I was thinking a lot about my health. I was thinking about my family. And I was thinking about the ability to sort of explore new ideas. And I also found the third lockdown in January, February, I guess I was, I'd freshly had this permanent tinnitus. I was sort of dealing with that and it was very, those bleak months of the year and we were locked down again. And, and I know I've seen some happiness charts that basically I was, I was basically just typical basically. But, but, but I found that sort of experience as with lots of other people causes you to reflect on what you're doing. And, and that's what I did. And I, I did a few sessions with a coach just to help me work through what I wanted, uh, why I wanted it and, and give me a clear head. And and with so once you've got a clear idea of um, why you want to make a change or or what a change might do for you, and I think it's perfectly plausible that I could get go on a huge loop and and think, do you know what the one thing I want to do is be CEO of an agency? Perfectly plausible. But I what I know is I need need the break, and um and that's what I hadn't really had for a very long uh, time. 
and so yeah i feel i feel good about it and, and probably it's not my mo either like my mo is to do completely different things and in the meantime you can become the world expert on dancer size you know i'm, I'm already up there uh, in the top something <laughs> all right jim thank you very much for joining us on the podcast for this episode well with me in the studio is joe dr joe baker um joe jim started off there talking about exactly the same sort of thing we heard on the last episode with vicky this idea of learning leadership from a few other jobs earlier in life yeah absolutely so it's fascinating that we've, we're getting similar traits coming out with when we've um uh, had podcast episodes side by side people end up talking about some some very similar experiences uh yeah it seems to be quite common doesn't it that people who are particularly entrepreneurial try several things they've got to try and work out where they fit into the world where they fit into the working world in particular uh and it's really good to i i think it's actually a really good trait i think it's a, it's a really good healthy thing that um, by trying many things and especially working in many different environments, uh, if you're smart, you can learn from that uh, and t uh, take those lessons into uh, applying them in your own context. It's very particularly interesting that Jim said Manifesto is the one agency that's actually been successful. I quite like that, that self-reflection, but, uh, but also that his entrepreneurial um, kind of instinct is, is clearly there quite deep. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the things, it's very, very common that entrepreneurs don't succeed necessarily with their first business, mm. but that each business they do equips them with new things that enables them to eventually succeed. And that, of course, is what, you know, the venture capital industry in the US is very good at recognizing. They often talk about, they, they want to look at founders having a track record of learning and, um, you know, learning by mistakes often, because what they're doing is investing in all of the learning that's come out of those problems. So they quite like to see that an, entre an entrepreneur has that sort of, you know, uh, tried different things and it may not have worked, but they've learned and they've moved on. Whereas I think in the UK business culture, there's much more of a, a thing of, it's a bit of a thing to almost be embarrassed about if businesses haven't worked out before i think that's changing but i think that's often been the case so i think it's great that people like him reflect it and say manifesto is just the first business that worked it's not the first business so yeah that's a really good lesson to draw out there and um, i guess there's also there's a kind of an instinct isn't there when if you are entrepreneurial that even if you do have a phase where you are employed uh, along the, which most people do i'm sure mm. um that there's a kind of an internal wrestling that you know that I'm, I'm not quite satisfied here and the only way to put that into practice is to try and do it better um yeah it's it's it, i've seen that many times certainly yeah and of course a very common founders journey where it's a group of friends colleagues who get together to start an agency and in this case there were three of them there were going to be four but it turned into three uh who decided to to start this and and begin that journey and then we saw that over time you know what jim was talking about was as the business grew uh he needed to grow into being the ceo role and the others <coughs> were being forced almost to grow into becoming a COO and a CTO, but they kind of didn't really want to. They liked more the practitioner level within the agency. And I think that's that's very common where that people struggle with as business partners. There's definitely a presumption frequently that the way to progress in your career is to become a manager, to, to move out of your doing whatever you're doing is, whether it's designing or uh, coding or, or, you know, whatever, um, an engineer, as my father-in-law was, the way to progress is to become a manager. 
And if that just doesn't suit you, why should you? It's really important to have uh, career paths for those who want to stay doing whatever they're doing is to become better at it and become you know more influential I suppose in doing it um, running a business and the skills associated with being um, a, a kind of director level if you like board level uh, is a particular set of skills it doesn't come for everybody it's not natural there's no should be no expectation that that's where you should end up at some point it's it's a particular set of skills a particular mindset uh, and interest uh, so yeah, it's it, um, it's not a story I've I've heard yet on our podcast series that um, um, we've had uh, uh, an agency leader talking about the necessary difference in direction that people wanted to go career wise. We've heard once twice about people feeling tired and needing to take a break. Um, but yeah, that's a really really fascinating one. Yeah, and it also sets up, you know, the the problem that when founders get together, as we heard in this case, you know, three of them got together, they don't necessarily think about the long term and how that partnership might be in 10 years time. They're too focused, you know, they have to be just on, we need to get our first client, we need to get this up and running. Whereas I think it's actually really important that A, when they're doing any venture, even if it might not work, to really get together and structure out, you know, a shareholders agreement, you know, the, the proper legal document. But beyond that, to set up a sort of shareholders mandate, which is this is how we want our to you know partnership to work in practice. You know, even if it's a limited company, not a strict partnership, but you know, partners as uh, investors in that business. You know, setting up a framework and and setting up that that, that ability that they don't necessarily all have to become managers, as you say, Joe. Um, you know, some of them can stay practitioners in the business because that can seed some friction as well, where you've got some of the founders who are you know growing and they naturally work as a, a c-suite level role and others who really just want to be practitioners but those who want to be practitioners often still find it difficult to give up that idea of having control within the business even though they don't want to do the job so they they can tend to fall into seeing the leader's role as being the admin of the business the people manager that sort of thing but they still want to have some control on we should do this or we should invest in that and that can be quite a tricky balance so yeah founders need to work that out quite as you say it's as you say, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, mm. it's, it's one of those things, I guess, as you said, is, is very hard to set in right at the beginning to have that foresight. But I wonder, um, maybe in your experience, Steve, whether this is something that um, a multiple of experiences of starting a thing helps you to, to set in those, the groundwork at the beginning. Is, is that something you would say you've, you've, you've seen, you've witnessed? Yeah, I think so, because even if you don't experience this sort of friction yourself, which is very common, you see it in others. You know, you talk to other leaders and you hear about this sort of thing occurring. So over time, you quickly learn that if we're going to start something, we have to sit down and define who controls what, who's in what, and over what time period we're okay with that on, and how we're going to regularly discuss and evolve that relationship. And then as we saw Jim talk about here with his business partners, they got to the stage where they wanted their lives to go in different directions, and so they had to figure out how they were going to part. And that ended up with them essentially needing to exit the business. Um, now, sometimes that's not actually what 
all of them want to do. You know, maybe that some of the business partners want to continue with running the business and just have some of them leave. But the challenge is once you've grown a business to be successful, it's worth so much money that it's very difficult for one set of partners to buy another set of partners out. And therefore that often tends to mean that when some people want to leave, it means everybody has to leave. There has mm. to be some kind of exit event. So I think you need some kind of planning, even if it's not right at the beginning, in the fairly early stages, it's if some of us want to leave, how are we going to make that happen? How will we fund it financially um, and set in place some of the things like that, some of the structures and the decision making um, so that, um, you know, it doesn't need to mean that everybody has to exit at that point. Um, but it's very difficult conversations to have, very difficult to take the time to do it, but also very difficult to talk about it in just a, hey, this is business kind of way. Because, um, you know, as we've heard in various podcasts, just when a staff member says they want to leave, mm -hmm. leaders get absolutely wounded. And it's just a natural thing, you know, to take it personally. So therefore, if a business partner says, I want to leave everything's shit, <laughs> then you also can you know, take that even harder. And so it can become quite an emotive discussion. So yeah, it's one of those really tricky issues when you've got co-founders, how do you create that structure and that process for evolving the structure? That means that there's going to be, everyone's gonna be happy with what their role is in the company and everyone's gonna understand what happens if somebody decides they need to move on. And there's gonna be the framework in place to support that. Um, what struck me though was that Jim was really keen on his role evolving and he quite naturally took to this idea of leadership as he was leading more and more people. And when he got to 10 people, he, he said this thing if he made a task list and one of the tasks was be a better CEO. Um, and, um, and so he's obviously from that point mindfully decided he's going to figure out how to lead a business and how to improve himself as a leader. Yeah, it was interesting that he reflected on the, um, his history that he had already learned some of the necessary traits. Uh, he spoke about being at Cancer Research UK, which point my ears pricked up. I, I, in my previous life, uh, I worked for Oxfam International. Um, and certainly in being in a very large organisation like those two, um, th that's a place in which you can have the kind of the scale they have the scale in which you, they they put in place the training and development and um, put on courses for um, whole teams to learn together and that sort of thing um, and clearly Jim learnt some important lessons there at uh, Cancer Research UK as, as I did when I was at Oxfam uh, similarly he said that uh, he learnt some things at uh, Barclays about international um, uh, business or business across borders and um, business across cultures. Uh, which are brilliant things to learn, um, especially as um, the generational changes within um, uh, staffing teams now are are much more evident. The um, when you you have a workforce that includes people from the baby boomers all the way through to um, you know we're now getting the the, the generation Y coming in. Um, there's a lots of different expectations of what's normality and be able to understand um, how those different dynamics work in a in a staffing team are really important. So really interested that Jim had already or he identified that he'd already learned some of those. But then he made the extra step, which I thought was interesting, of saying, I, I still haven't learned enough. I need to talk to someone in order to be able to un unearth this sort of stuff. And so he went to find a coach. Mm. Um, what's your experience of executive coaching, that, that sort of thing, Steve? Do you think this is a it's a valuable thing? 
I, I think from the outside it seems hugely valuable. I've um, always struggled with it for a bit. Uh, you know, I, I've run businesses for a long time and I remember early on in my business career you'd get the people who had been made redundant from the big banks. The big banks had a big clear out and they had to figure out the next thing. A lot of them decided to become life coaches. So I remember, you know, often being at business events and chatting to people and someone would say, oh, I'm a life coach. And they would be the kind of people that had their lifetime career in a large bank, deciding to go into coaching and really not having a lot of idea about running a business or leading a large organization that sort of been in the, the ranks of middle management. And so I ended up with a bit of a cynical view of it. So it's not something I've tended to pursue, but I know people who have and have found it very useful, like Jim here. And I also now know some people who have exited from being agency leaders and become coaches and they're people that I respect. So I think it's something that has evolved a lot, maybe in the early days of coaching as a profession, it was a little bit, you know, Wild West and it was just a thing that people did. Now perhaps they become influencers. Um, but um, <laughs> it's uh, back then it was it was different. But now it does seem to be that there is more of a kind of people who have been there and been through that and had those lessons doing that. But I still think I wonder what it's like and how it is that they can detach their own experiences from the discussion and just focus on your own experience or does it end up being a conversation like oh yes i remember when that happened to me and uh, you know which is not always very helpful uh, because you know you, the same patterns do not necessarily guarantee the same results what you've got to do is learn skills and um, ways of dealing with things rather than just following here's a game plan for this particular thing. So I'm, I'm very interested in it. I've not tried coaching myself and I don't have the skills to become a coach. Um, certainly not my <laughs> my skill set um so but i you know i think it would be very interesting i would i would love to find out more about it and perhaps uh, in future episodes we can talk to people about their coaching experiences a little bit more yes exactly what i was hoping we hope we can find some more guests that will uh, be able to talk about their experience of coaching yeah. um, maybe the lesson to learn from that sort of thing is how important it is to do your research if you if you want to find a coach how important it is to do your research to find someone who's uh, own background gels enough or will, will cross over enough uh, with your area rather than just hiring someone who's been an executive at, at a very very big multinational you know they're not yeah. going to understand the agency world yeah, yeah how important is it actually if there are uh, people listening if you've got um, uh, your own experience of coaching uh, or being coached rather uh, we'd love to hear about it we'll talk about it on a future episode so you can email us hello at convivio.com hello at convivio.com will come through to Joe and I um, and uh, we will uh, talk about them on future episodes of the podcast um, so do let us know if you found uh, being coached very helpful and how that worked and uh, uh, you know what you got out of it it would be very interesting to hear about or you can tweet us at convivio that's at convivio c-o-n-v-i-v-i-o and we'd love to hear your stories uh, via any channel you choose uh, now, Joe, one of the other things Jim mentioned about sort of improving himself as a leader is he used this framework that has been mentioned a few other times on the podcast, the Entrepreneurial Operating System, EOS. 
Uh, now it was developed by a chap in the States called Gino Wickman and he wrote a book called Traction which sort of set out these ideas. And a lot of agency leaders talk about it as that there are some ideas in there they really connect with. They don't always want to adopt the whole thing but they cherry pick ideas and the one that uh, Jim picked out here was this idea of um, leadership is really two types of things. And at the moment you know generally people try and cram both of those things into one role, into one person, whereas it should be separated out. And so Jim talked about there being this visionary role, uh, what I often talk about as the instigator, you know, someone who's just out there starting things, making things happen, generating new ideas, creating opportunities. And the integrator, uh, the person whose role it is to take all of these and make them into the normal of the business, you know, kind of integrate each new idea and each new opportunity into the business and be a little bit of a buffer between uh, the business and this visionary instigator type person um, who can stress everybody out by going, hey, I've got a new thing, let's try the new thing. Um, and the rest of the business going, look, we're a bit busy trying to actually do the stuff we're already doing. Um, and you need both of those things. And so in between, you have this integrator role. Um, and Jim was saying that, you know, initially he was having to do bits of that and to do some of the operations work. But as he grew the business, he brought in people who were specialists and who that was their natural mode of working, who acted as kind of the uh, the integrator to the business, one of whom he married. So that obviously went quite well uh, as, a, as a collaborative relationship. Um, and, um, and I think that's really important is that CEOs recognizing which type of role they are and bringing in you know the other type of leadership within within the organization because otherwise for a prolonged period that is you know too many things to hold in your head too many ways of operating uh, in order to function uh, function effectively but then leaders have the problem that they have to kind of let go of stuff and Jim talked a little bit about that as well you know building up that trust and letting go. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think it's something which comes very naturally to entrepreneurs. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on the last episode of the podcast, actually, how um, there's an assumption built into us, it's unvoiced usually, that we have to be the answer for everything. We have to be the person at whom the buck stops. And uh, we have to have the answer all the time. Um, we have to have the strategy, the way forward, the plan. We have to be the, the big personality. Uh, Vicky spoke about having retrospectives and without saying this is our antidote to that uh, natural way, it's actually really interesting, I think, maybe that it is a, a natural antidote that by asking, reflecting, uh, sorry, asking for um, reflections on the way the organisation is working, the way the business is working, the way the staff team's working together. Um, it, it's a, you know, that, that is a way to try and combat um, the CEO person being um, the, the the fount of all knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, the, the ultimate authority. Um, but I'm sure you're right. Absolutely, that this thing identified in the um, EOS is that uh, having those two roles and having them, you know, it's too much one person to contain within themselves for anything longer than is absolutely necessary, and mm -hmm. it needs to be, um, you know, split out. Yeah, vital. 
I love one of the techniques he had for, you know, emphasizing this thing of we need to continually improve, we need to get better, walking around the office going, we're only practicing. <laughs> and that yeah. idea that each thing, you, everything you're doing now is just practice for what you're going to do next. And you're going to do it really well. But like a professional sportsman or performer or something, each thing is practice in itself in order to improve uh, for the future. I, I really like that technique as well. Um, okay, uh, then we get to this thing that really, you know, he's grown the business. It's uh, 10 years uh, into the business. They've kind of got to £5 million turnover. The business partners decide that they want to go different ways and they start looking for this exit. They do the merger. That sounds like it was a huge growth time for Jim, learning lots of different things, very exciting. But it took its toll. Yes, absolutely. It, it's a pattern we've we've heard quite a lot. Um, I, I I think for uh, for many um, these big moments they seem very attractive, absolutely, and you know they certainly should be done mergers and acquisitions and and other big changes you can make in the business, but they do have their consequences. Absolutely, they do. Currently being um, exacerbated by the, the the pandemic, where our um, natural way of being as leaders say um as as we heard with vicky in the previous episode if you're ebullient and um empathetic and need to be around people where the the natural way of uh, handling the the challenges that come to that is being around other people but the pandemic has has limited that it's it's um it's an enormous challenge definitely so jim's then seen health issues and so on and from that as you said talking to a coach has decided to step back for a bit. Uh, but I think uh, the way that Jim sounds, that sounds temporary, shall we say. Yeah, absolutely. And probably going to in involve some lycra and some uh, leggings as well <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. for his, his new career. Speaking of which, Joe, you'd probably better get to your dancer size class now and uh, get in practice. Yeah, yeah, only 15 minutes <laughs> to go. Okay, great. great. <laughs> well, it was fantastic hearing from Jim. As with all of our guests, these are all people I found really inspiring as agency leaders. It's great to hear some of the stories and some of the experiences that they've had um, and to share those. So we do want to share this as widely as possible. So if you enjoy this podcast, do let other people know. Do talk to other agency leaders. And if you'd like a little bit more top up of uh, inspiration and ideas about leading agencies, Joe and I publish a weekly newsletter at convivio.com. So you can go there, look at some of the past editions and sign up so that you get it every Monday morning to start your week off with a little bit of a buzz and some ideas uh, that you can take into your week and that can help you to be more proactive and to work on your business as confidently as you work in it. That's the idea of everything that we're doing at Convivio. Uh, so that's the mission that we're on. So we'll be back in two weeks' time with the next episode of this podcast. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.